0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Joanne. And I'm Kim. Today, we have a really good topic for you guys. So on the podcast today, we have Marcusell Mercedes, or Mikey as he prefers to be called, who is a doctoral student and writer from the Bronx, New York, and who is currently based in Providence, Rhode Island, has a presidential fellow at the Brown University School of Public Health. Her doctoral training and interests are at the intersection of fat studies and scholarship on racism. She is broadly interested in how racism, anti-blackness and fat phobia shape healthcare, research and public health work and training.
1: Mikey is part of a committee for the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. And she writes about fat politics and the health industrial complex on Medium in her spare time. A humanist at heart with a degree in English, mikey is finding her way as a fat liberationist one word at a time welcome to the show mikey we're so happy to have you yes we
0: are
2: yes thank you so much for having me
1: so i know that this is a very hot topic so we're just going to jump right into the questions so the first question that we have for you is, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, you know, our audience may not know who you are, where you're located, what you're all about. So go ahead and tell us about yourself and your background.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm originally from the Bronx. Um, I just moved to Providence about a year ago for grad school. I'm a doctoral student at the Brown University School of Public Health, and I'm doing my PhD basically entirely focused on fat phobia, weight stigma, and the overlap between that and anti-Blackness and structural racism. Um, So really taking an intersectional approach to understanding why certain bodies are seen as bad versus others. And yeah, just trying to push the field forward that way. This is like, I didn't anticipate that um, something that I wrote just like, off the rip would um, have this much attention, but I'm I'm really happy to talk about this because I feel like it's super important and has a lot of you know real tangible consequences for health outcomes, but also just like people's general quality of life. So I'm really just happy to be here with you too. I nice. Agreed.
1: So so what 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 sparked the interest in fat phobia in the first place? I'm curious.
2: Um, I I mean I have. I've always been, like, visibly fat. Like, I was chubby, and then, like, I've always just, like, been a person in a bigger body. Um, and, like, so I'm, I'm acutely aware of, like, how that transforms someone's, I think, li- lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I've always avoided in sort of my academics, like, my my research interests and stuff. Like, when I came into grad school, I thought I was going to do HIV and structural racism stuff and then i i flipped like i read fat liberation stuff body liberation stuff got deeper into intersectionality and critical race theory and then just sort of found myself reading things from activists that felt very real and also way more important than like anything i was learning in any of my classes Mm -hmm. so i it was it was a really natural progression And now that I'm actually in the space and like doing fat studies work, it feels very like, I feel at home.
0: So what prompted you to write the article, The Unbearable Whiteness and Fat Phobia of Anti-Diet Dietitians?
2: (laughs) Um, I, well, I recently sort of started using social media again Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. And... As someone who's never really used it with any kind of intent before, I was trying to find other people sort of in the body liberation space who I could learn things from, but also that I could like find community with. Right. And I sort of stumbled into that area of Instagram that has like all of the anti-diet people um, <laughs> it wasn't with any sort of like intention. It's like the stuff that shows up on your explore page mm-hmm. or like when you're on Facebook and you're just sort of scrolling and ads come up that seem like they're supposed to be for you, but they're not really a lot of weight loss stuff, a lot of like do this thing and lose 10 pounds off your waist, whatever, like instantly, like a lot of stuff like that. Um, but the most shocking stuff was definitely seeing people who were using body positive body liberation rhetoric to further things that were definitely not that at all in principle. Mm. Um, and that got me really mad. So I I wrote, I started writing something and then there was the whole thing that I mentioned in the first part of my essay where a someone who I'm in a health at every size Facebook group um with had an interaction with a very popular anti-diet dietitian and it was a really negative interaction and i was just like well this is what i needed to sort of like crystallize all these thoughts together into something cohesive that people can read and then i posted it and somehow it it went far (laughs) it went (laughs) it went real far Mm -hmm. way farther than i was expecting because
0: everybody else has been thinking it and they just have not said it that's what it is
2: I think it's really hard to to pinpoint why certain things make us feel gross when we see them. Um, and like that was part of the reason why I sort of got stuck writing that essay in the first place, because I knew that the stuff I was seeing was messed up, but I, I couldn't vocalize why. Mm-hmm. And so seeing someone, I think, be so like openly hostile mm, wow. to the concept of accountability and responsibility and harm that they may have committed or they may have been a part of um, that really just, that sort of got my brain moving. I was like, okay, like now, now I know what, what this is like, this is a form of violence. Oh, snap. All right. (laughs) Time to write about that. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad that you said that Mikey, because, you know, I had to, you know, I had to read your article a few times well and I was just very appalled at the fact that, oh, we don't have the problem, you have the problem, so you go fix the problem type of mentality. And I was like, let let me read that. Is is that really what's going on? (laughs) So, you know, I wanted to, you know, ask you a question. So I've realized, especially since this body positivity movement has started, And you know, it started as a safe space to help people that live in a bigger body really love and accept themselves. But I feel like for people of color, that the finish line has, it's constantly being moved. You can never attain. So would you say that that's what's going on with the white versus black or the uh, brown versus non-brown, you know, body positivity movement? Is that what you, you see is happening?
2: honestly like that's all i see happening Mm -hmm. at least in the mainstream like i've been really really happy at the recent success of stephanie yeboa who like is just a very just amazing fat black woman who i i just i've loved to see her blossom this year it's the only good thing that's happened so far um but besides those very few notable people that defy the the acceptable fat, the acceptable, the acceptable unacceptable body, um, there aren't that many people who who I think can reach that different kind of finish line that is set for them because by virtue of their race or their size and absolutely a combination of those two things. Um, I think that the standards have always been different for black and brown bodies, mm-hmm. period. Um, Black and brown people, especially when they are fat black and brown people, have always been used as synonymous with immorality yeah. and grossness and unholiness and those are just facts that I think are completely unparsable from what we're talking about right now. And I just I don't see a c I don't see a contemporary body positivity movement that involves both very conventionally small, small-ish fat people that are white, along with bigger, blacker fat people that that actually serves all those people equally. And I don't think it's at first, I don't think that can exist. And I don't think it should because I don't think that smaller white people need to be served by that movement. So like, it's, (laughs) I just, the finish line is different. And there's also all this stuff from having us move in the first place. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and define for us what is the acceptable,
1: unacceptable body. What What is that? What does that look like?
2: The acceptable, unacceptable body, I think, is the body that we all see in, like, body-positive campaigns. Like, have you seen, like, the airy marketing stuff? Like, you know, you have the girl who's white and a size 10 or 12, and she's sort of an hourglass, but there's not that much extra there. And she's, and she's acceptable to look at. She's pal- palatable. She's the girl that... You can caption that picture with like, oh, real women have curves. Okay. And it's like, no one will tell you different because that looks like a real woman, right? Well, that's because she's a few pounds heavier than the very thin, unachievable ideal that has been pushed on us by a broader culture. Um, And she's about as fat as we can deal with someone getting without feeling uncomfortable. So yeah, that that's usually what I think of as like the acceptable, unacceptable body.
0: Gotcha. So recently I was listening to, um, on Instagram, the journalist Danielle Young. I don't know if you've heard of her. So I was listening to something that she was, um, a live that she was doing. Mm-hmm. And she made this quote that resonated with me. And she said that the narrative that is often spoken is that we, Black folks, what we do is ghetto until proven white people like it. So I'm going further ahead of that and say that throughout history, what we do, how we look, how we cook, you know, it's all been hated on, right? Until white people like it. And then it's all the rage and, you know, it's marketed for people to follow it and, you know, do it and it becomes a thing. So what do you think about that, especially when it comes to the body positivity movement?
2: Absolutely. I, I always, I feel like, I'm a broken record because I always tell people to read Fearing the Black Body from Sabrina Strings because that whole hourglass, like, full-figured woman ideal that we, like the Coke bottle, like, we, that we think of, that that shape became ideal after it was seen on Black women mm-hmm. and how different it was from white women's bodies. And then, but mind you, their their bodies were being admired. Their bodies were admired as some of the most beautifully shaped, like, of the world. And she details this um, in her book, which is fantastic. And I think that anybody who's thinking about, like, fatness or just stigma in general and blackness needs to read it ASAP, um, if they haven't already. Um, you know, their black women's bodies were some of the most, you know, hailed about bodies in the world except for their faces because that was where you could truly see the differences in their features that separated them from European women which is wild when you think about it um literally sort of like this metaphorical moral beheading of a person that really separates them from their humanity take literally taking off their head from the positive consideration of their being wow um and so i think you know black women initially with their shape they they popularized the hourglass shape and then women white women who had that shape were praised in like in succession to that initial praise Mm -hmm. um so i always think of that as the initial (laughs) like example of You know, it's, it's ghetto, it's bad until proven that white people like it. Um, I think that just, I, like, I, I don't know why I always think of this, but like, when I was younger, wearing hoop earrings was like really ghetto. Like it was just, it was so, it was really like only like my my mom used to really say like only hood rats, like war, like hope earrings. And then now it's like they sell it at Forever 21. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many white girls I've seen come up on social media over appropriating that whole aesthetic, mm-hmm. an aesthetic that's essentially commodified Blackness. And and it's not any different in the body positivity movement. I think specifically it it hits a bit different. For me, at least, um, when we're talking about how white people have stolen the body positivity movement, mm-hmm. I think it hits a little bit different because that feels more more of a, like a violation. Because um, you're essentially taking away a safe space from someone else. And I think that for people who haven't had to deal with cycles of intergenerational harm and trauma, mm-hmm. they don't understand how important it is to have a liberatory space where you can imagine a future where your body is not a basis of oppression. Yeah. (laughs) Body positivity is just another thing in a very long list of things that are ghetto until proven white people like it.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: It's true. Cause you know, as you were speaking, Mikey, I was thinking, um, you know, back in college, I had a roommate and she studied fashion design And, you know, she would always tell me about Marilyn Monroe and how she was, and she's black, mind you, my roommate, well, at the time, and how Marilyn Monroe during her time was just so different from the physique of other women and uh, basically defined the acceptable, unacceptable, bigger white woman body. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, wow, you know, if you would, as you said, metaphorically decapitate Marilyn Monroe's head and put a black woman on it. Like, oh my gosh, fair, fair everywhere. Right. But because she had that European physique with her nose and her bone structure, uh, it was, it was deemed acceptable. You know, she was the mistress of JFK. That's another story for another time. And it was all popularized. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to bring out this point. What I fear is happening because, you know, as dietitians, where We're all about health and nutrition. But what I fear is happening in the body body positivity movement is, you know, people are promoting, well, yeah, you know, eat that cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. A-okay, everything's going to be all right. You can, Melanated folks, you can eat what you want. But at the same time, I feel as if, we as black and brown people are going to be the ones that end up with the health issues simply because of systemic racism and where your zip code is and the foods that are available to you and Mm -hmm. things of that nature. What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think that I really, I really don't appreciate the oversimplification of like, eat what you want when you want. Because I always feel like whenever someone does that and doesn't problematize it at all, it's a sign that they're taking ideals that one they don't understand and then trying to apply them to something that it wasn't for. Like somebody who tells me eat what you want when you want, they do it without any sense for why people are restricted Mm -hmm. in what they eat in the first place Mm -hmm. because they themselves have not educated themselves on what like the consequences are of structural oppression. Like you don't tell someone eat what you want when you want, like who Hmm. does not have access to food that they would want to be eating. Because I feel like you're giving them this eat whatever you want toolkit and you're not questioning why they are restricted Mm -hmm. in what they're eating in the first place. If you're going to sell a pretty package that tells people that – they should accept whatever they decide they deserve. That's not okay with me. I also think that a lot of the time, you know, the things that people say, eat what you want when you want, Mm -hmm. a lot of those things are like junk food in white Mm -hmm. culture. Like they're like, oh, like (laughs) eat that pizza, eat that cake, eat those cookies. (laughs) But they're never gonna like, Tell me, like, oh, hey, you should definitely have like four servings of oxtail and rice and beans because.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> like, they're never gonna tell me that. Right. So, and if, right. and if that equation doesn't happen, then I need you to dig deep. And figure out why that is. Because if you're okay with me binging... Also, it's, like, really responsible to tell someone to eat whatever they want when they want. Because, like I said, you don't know what they're going through. And disordered eating is a real thing. And it looks different in our communities than it does in white communities. So that's, like, period, point blank. But, like, I know for a fact you're never going to tell me to, like, have 14 empanadas. Mm -hmm. So... Mm Why right, right. is it acceptable for food that you feel <laughs> is, like, decadent in your culture? And that doesn't translate. Right. And that's a question that I feel like I have not seen people ask enough. And it really bugs me out. Because I'm like, I have not seen a single one of these anti-diet dietitians holding, like, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen them holding, like, a whole thing. Fried plantains. Like, I haven't seen no one do that. Have you? Because I sure, I have not. And so... <laughs> 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 So I just I I have it because it looks suspect because it seems like eat what you want, what you want only works when it's applied to eating what you want out of white culture, too. And I'm not okay with that.
0: That, you know, I just find it dangerous. I find it to be a dangerous generalized statement to make eat what you want when you want, because it doesn't take into consideration people who are battling with diabetes, who are battling with high blood pressure, who may be one donut away from a heart attack. It doesn't take into consideration those people who don't understand nutrition and don't understand health sciences and is going to see, oh, a dietitian is telling me to eat what I want when I want, so why not do it? And that's, that's where my biggest problem is because I'm all for keeping your culture. I'm from the Caribbean. I'm Haitian American. I love my foods. I'm not giving my foods up. But I'm also not going to be the one to tell anyone in my family to go ahead and just eat a plate full because we could load that plate up with some rice and beans now. (laughs) I'm not going to tell them to continue to eat loads of your plate of rice and beans. Yes, we're going to eat those rice and beans and we're going to tear it up, but we are not going to be having only a whole load of rice and beans on our plate. No vegetables. Right. You got to think about this stuff. And I feel like it's dangerous when those statements are made and the consideration of who is out there listening is not made. That's that's my biggest thing about it all.
2: However, I do think that as someone who sees like the moralization of food as more dangerous than what an individual might eat at a given time, I think it's more important to sort of get away with the, these foods are bad, these foods are good. That's true. Because that doesn't help anybody. No, it and doesn't. what foods are bad, I know what foods aren't going to be called bad. Because we've all seen which foods are good and who they are palliated towards. Right. And yeah, so I don't know. I just, I definitely, I think myself as a person Mm. who I'm like, I'm in that culture too. And I see what Mm -hmm. eating what you want, when you want Mm -hmm. might look like if it's applied to like my family, for example. And I think the parts of me that get worried about the possible consequences of that. I can't take those away from how I've been trained to think about certain foods so i just i feel like the moralization of food and what i'm worried about someone might do if they're given license to eat whatever they want i feel like those things are the same thing
0: so i want to quote you because this next question i want people to understand why we're asking it so in your article you stated when thin white women use their womanhood to invade the body liberation space while simultaneously benefiting from whiteness and thinness When they violate the space to enrich themselves as anti-diet dietitians, saviors, who get it and have been there and can save you from yourself, they are committing a violation. They are being violent. They are hurting people in the way white women have always hurt people. And by using an anti-diet dietetics as both scientific legitimacy and a woke signal, they are protecting themselves from a criticism and accountability while doing so. So I want you, um, you know, to elaborate for us and why you think it's such a violent act.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's first of all, it's always so weird to hear someone else read. What
1: read. <laughs> I'm always like, oh god, oh no, I wrote that. Oh god.
2: Um, <laughs> but no, I think this sort of hark- harkens back to what I said earlier. I think, I think of the body positive space as a kind of safe space where folks, specifically folks that are bigger and Blacker than anyone you see at the forefront of the mainstream movement, where they, it's a place where they can find protection and community and fight for liberation together. And when someone decides to co-opt it in any way, I'm specifically talking about white women in that passage, when you decide to co-opt it, whether that's for personal validation or for profit, because that's another big part of this, the commodification of those ideals, Mm-hmm. You're essentially making the choice that you're fine with someone else feeling less safe if it means you can feel better mm. or you can make money. Right. And I can't think of something that is more messed up and harmful cuz like what I said I I don't think that people who don't need safe spaces understand what it is to have a safe space that is also a liberatory space cuz it's not just about feeling protected Mm. or loved or in community it's literally about imagining and fighting towards a future where you are not structurally oppressed on the basis of your size which often coincides with your race um i just i i can't imagine taking that away from someone else and not being continually plagued by the guilt of stealing that kind of solace away from someone else stealing that kind of opportunity to imagine a new world, a new future where they're treated more like a human. I honestly cannot justify someone taking that. And especially not for profit Mm. because like, it's one thing if you are, you're struggling with your own body image issues. And honestly, in terms of like thin white women using body positive ideals, I, and I alluded to this in my article I think a lot of the time when they co opt those values, they're trying to placate themselves and comfort themselves because they feel like they failed to live up to some kind of mythical ideal of what white femininity is. Mm-hmm. And I get that because you feel like you failed to achieve that mythical standard and that sucks. But if you're, it's still wrong, but it sucks. If you're profiting, if you're profiting off of it, if you are selling 200, 300, 400, $500 classes, and monetizing your Instagram posts in order to enrich yourself, and you're also taking that space away from someone else, that's violation, that's violence, and I I don't know another way to describe it that is fitting.
1: So Mikey, you know, while I was, <laughs> it, it, I mean, you, you packed in a lot in there.
3: <laughs> you
1: packed in a lot. I mean, it's like. And it's good. It's good that you packed in a lot because honestly, it's provoking thought. And, you know, I wanted to ask you a question because, you know, we're speaking about thin, not thin white women, but white women who do not fit the standard of thinness and their societal definition of what thinness is. But what do you feel about black and brown people who are not, I mean, and I'm going to use the term that you used when you started, who are not fat, but are thick I hope we all understand that definition, um, those definitions as the same. But how do do you feel about black and brown women who are doing the same exact thing, that they're monetizing it, that they're not creating a safe space for the quote unquote fat black and brown person?
2: I think. So thick is such a politically loaded term, right? Like it's mm-hmm. subjective as hell. Yes. Like I, I know that <laughs> I have been called, I have been called thick and fat in the same day. Okay. Like, and often, mm-hmm. and I've also been called like curvy and fat in the same day by the same person. It's just that their sentiment towards me changed. So I think that like, oh. let's think about, What does thick even mean? But if okay, so like we reading it back a little bit, and we're just like okay, fine. Thick is you have an acceptably unacceptable body, like that. That's what it is. So we'll go by that definition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen plenty of black and brown folks who are thick by that definition who have been actively antagonistic to fat people who are black and brown. I've seen it happen. I've seen them endorse sort of like these these dehumanizing ideals that because certain black and brown folks are fat that they're somehow less like yeah good things that they've that they've experienced in their lives i think we can all think back like three seconds and remember what lizzo discourse looked like online not that long ago
3: Mm
2: -hmm. um and how a lot of the people who were shaming her were definitely not white so um I like to always extend a certain kind of grace to my folks because we're struggling with a lot more than a lot of others, but also we need to check ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like you need to check yourself. Like if you are a black and Brown person and you're thick and let's say you've never been experienced to discrimination on the basis of yourself, because that is a, that is like a very specific kind of discrimination that will look different for a black woman for instance than a white woman if you've never experienced that I just don't understand how you would justify breaking down someone else Mm -hmm. like from your community because you feel like they don't look right like I just I just don't get how you justify that and if you do find yourself doing that there's always time for self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And there's always time to be like, oh, I messed up. I'm wrong. That was wrong. Or maybe think about like, because I I mean, like I've done it too. Like before I, before I really understood like what weight stigma, what featurism was, what any of that was. Like I remember being like calling people box bodied mm-hmm. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. That was a thing. It was a very common thing. It was something I grew mm-hmm. up around. And it was something that I now understand was actively used to devalue certain women that I grew Mm. up around who had a certain shape, who were not acceptable, unacceptable. And like, I just, I know now it's it's wrong. right? And so I can do my best to try to take accountability for that, to vocalize how I've done those things, to support however I Mm -hmm. can the folks around me who are doing the work Mm -hmm. to dismantle the stuff so that we don't even, so that that's not not perpetuated into the next generation that's coming up now. Mm -hmm. And I think that people, especially black and brown people who are thick, always have the opportunity to do that. I think the problem comes in when like, when they think like i don't have to do that because of xyz why i just don't understand mm. why no matter why someone's fat no matter why they don't look the way you want them to look i don't understand why you would want to treat anybody else as less than human for any reason
1: i'm i'm happy i'm happy that you you brought that out because you know a lot of times you know, I think that's something that I don't hear a lot of, you know, even though you said, you know, you have to extend grace to black and brown people because we're all in this struggle. We've seen what's happening in 2020. We realize that, you know, there's not only issues of colorism, there's issues of featureism, as you mentioned, there's issues of how you physically look, your weight. So within communities, black and brown communities, there's so many division amongst ourselves mm-hmm. that it's 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 disheartening, it's crazy. And I'm glad that, you know, you were bold enough to point that out, that, you know, it is an issue. It does need to be addressed. But at the same time, I'm going to extend a grace to my brothers and sisters. So I appreciate that.
0: Now, you know, I was thinking to myself how I have friends who've often told me, like when they go to the doctor how the minute they arrive, whatever the symptoms they're trying to tell the doctor is going on with them. They don't look at anything else, but the fact that they are larger in size than what the supposed BMI that they love to reference is supposed to be, Uh you know? Um, And, you know, I mean, these people, my my friends that, that I'm speaking of, you know, they're black. And, and I often wonder how, how often does this happen to a white woman who presents to a physician and they're talking about their symptoms, you know, things that are affecting them, um, and we uh, they automatically go to the fact that you know, just lose weight, but without any testing, it's—it's crazy. But that's the world we live in, and I believe that this movement, hopefully, um, is going to open the eye, the eyes of these healthcare practitioners more. Um, but I don't think that we. Allowed you to define for us what your definition of the body positivity movement is. Like, how do you define it?
2: The body positivity movement is secondary to the fat liberation movement. Wow. The project of it it came out, that's where it came from. Like, the size acceptance, fat acceptance movement, like, that's where the body positivity movement came out from. And so it will always be secondary to that for me. And I think for a lot of other people too. And the fat liberation movement is the social struggle, the political project mm-hmm. of dismantling structural oppression of fat bodies. And I feel like if that is not at the center of the body positivity movement, and I think from what we've talked about, it very clearly is not anymore. That's a problem because um, I, I just, it's, it's not for anything else. You know, this isn't, this isn't feel good. Like this isn't a Hallmark commercial. Like <laughs> this is. This is real people's lives that we're, we're talking about. Like, if I go into a doctor's office and I have an ear infection and a doctor tells me to lose weight, who knows what else they're not catching? Mm-hmm. And who knows how I'm going to pay for it? Because I'm always going to be the one who's going to pay for structural oppression. It's nobody else. Mm-hmm. Maybe my family, but it's always us. It's, it's the oppressed that pays for that. And so I just... I just don't see it as the positivity to me a second, right? It's always about liberation. It's about fat liberation.
1: So, you know, if dietitians, white dietitians, black dietitians, it doesn't matter if dietitians in general and wellness influencers, if they want to become a part of the fat liberation and the body positivity movement, how can they do so? How can they do so with with understanding, with empathy and also to, you know, bring more awareness to this? Because I know, you know, something that's going to be looked at is they're going to be like, oh, well, Kim, you know, you're talking about this, but look at your physique. Why is this important to you? How can someone do that, that, you know, may look differently, different sizes, different skin colors, different ages? How is that done?
2: I think it all depends on how you do your work. Like, I I think that, you know, the most effective kind of activism and advocacy and support is, you know, it first meets people where they're at. So like, if you find that you're someone who does a lot of work on social media, I really, really highly recommend just like a few days a week, spotlighting someone else in a bigger body, in a blacker body than yours, highlighting their work, talking to them about their relationship with food. How do they sort of How do they make their choices? How do they feel about them? What kinds of things help them get through the day? Like, these are all integral to health and wellness. And so, like, why aren't you talking to them? Um, I also think that if you are someone, if you are, let's say, a white practitioner that works with an underserved community, which I feel like I I see that more and more often, and and you have, like, money coming in from that community, you should be funneling some part of that back into community organizations that directly serve that community. Like, we're talking about redistribution here. Mm-hmm. It absolutely should be a priority. Um, if you are profiting off of folks that your people have historically oppressed, you should absolutely be paying back into them, period. Um, I don't really think we can... I I couldn't argue that with someone. Um, I also think that if you're someone, let's say, who develops programs um, or, like, if you're on the more academic side of stuff, like, I know that a lot of people in the academy who, like, let's say, work with certain, certain training programs for future practitioners and whatnot, they don't really know what to do. But I think that it's always worth, like, taking a look at what you're teaching and like what you know and what you learned and trying to dig deeper for like why the things that you know were touted as knowledge Mm -hmm. because i just know that especially in nutrition like a lot of the foods that are recommended and and upheld as like healthy those are usually the ones that are most palatable to white people Mm -hmm. and so or or they're like appropriated from other cultures and like that's never discussed and so i think that that's that's always a place to start because food like has such i think if if i think if we look at the real history of what we eat and why we eat it then we can find a lot of evidence of imperialism and colonialism there Mm -hmm. um it's you know, nothing that we have now exists in a vacuum. It all came from somewhere and it's shaped by a kind of history somewhere. Right. I also think that like I've seen this really huge divide between not just like dietitians who would subscribe to like more normative um paradigms and anti-diet dietitians but like even within the anti-diet space you have white anti-diet dietitians and black anti-diet dietitians and there's just like a lot of different understandings of what their work means. Um, I think that if you are someone in a position of privilege whether that is by race or by size you have a duty to seek out voices that are more marginalized than you and figure out where the discrepancies are. And sometimes it's as simple as sending someone a message on Instagram or on Twitter. Other times it's like, hey, let's have a meeting between community organizations or like our practices and see what we can learn from each other. Um, I just I think that no matter where someone is, like I always reiterate, there is a way you can be active and do activism. Mm-hmm. And it will always make things better. Because like, there's there's no improvement to be gained by keeping things at the status quo. And that's something that I'm always learning is true in public health, where it's like, I learned something one day and I'm just like, no, no, we need to burn this down like right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I just, just always be open to learning and to understanding that like, things exist i hate that i hate that phrase but like we live in a society like you know like we live in a society that society has a history it has stratification it has hierarchies it has rules it has obstacles it has privilege for some people for many people and like we need to acknowledge that and understand where we lie in that space and figure out how to help each other and move on because like this whole like me pointing out to people the privilege they have and them going oh I can't do anything right oh my god I'll never be taken seriously because I'm an xyz person in dietetics like no need for all that don't do that there's there's no need for all of that just take take the l Mm -hmm. like take the momentary l and and improve yourself and move on (laughs) that is so true (laughs) humility (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, I, I'm i so happy that we had you on here. The minute we read your article, we were like, we got to have Mikey on. And we because we, we've been talking about it so much. And we were like, we got to have somebody with her knowledge and expertise on here to break it down to the people even more. And even myself, you know, I grew up in the 90s where descriptive terms um, were used often um, for people's bodies. So I myself, I'm trying to remove that kind of thinking You know, I've always been like in my practice, I never use BMI for people. I I look at it like... It's crazy. That mentality growing up in the 90s, that thinking I had to and I'm still actively working on that, like how I when I see someone how I how I describe them in my mind. I never say it out loud, but I and I have to remove that, you know, thinking. And I'm so happy that we had you on here um to give us more of an like an expert background on the body positivity movement, the fat liberation uh movement so that people can just learn a little bit more about it. So Where can our audience find you Um, on social media or wherever it is at? Yeah.
2: Um, I'm on Twitter. I spend way too much time on Twitter um, at Marcusell, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-L-E, like my full government name. Um, (laughs) And that's where I spend the majority of my time. Um, I would also encourage people to follow other folks who have been doing this work for like a really long time. Um, you know, there's Deshaun Harrison. They are fantastic and they have always done really, really fantastic work. And I am so excited for their book that is coming out next year. Um, there's also people like Stephanie Yeboah. There's also folks in- between like the fatness and disability spaces, like Imani Barberin. Fantastic. Um, you know, usually... If you go to someone's page who's in the fat lib space, especially if they do like fat liberation and racism stuff, you'll 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 find out like who's who's sort of in that network. I think because you know it's just you find people and you stick with them and you build off of the knowledge that you're all collectively creating. Um, so I am I'm happy to you know be a resource for folks, but I also think that you know there are lots of other people. Who are doing really fantastic work and they should be highlighted as well nice awesome
1: awesome so with that being said thank you once again mikey for coming on our podcast and distributing your knowledge with us So guys, if you're listening to this episode, we highly encourage you to share it with a friend. If you're a dietitian, please, please, please see how you can become more informed about the marginalization that people who live in bigger bodies experience. So until next time, thank you for listening. See you guys. Bye. Bye
0: guys.